Once you hear Dr. Dan, weekends on WJRB 95.1 FM, you'll know he's right. Really, this is a nation that is built upon the concept of private property ownership. As a matter of fact, the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Catch Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. and again Sundays at 2.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. on News Talk 95.1. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission. To explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Well, we're talking here with with Bob Kappelman. Uh, an environmental scientist. We're talking about um, the effect of net zero, uh, the effect on us all that uh, net zero will have. Um, So we've talked about the fact that the UN and the scientists in there who work for them and and, uh, are favorable to them, um, cherry pick facts and use those facts to prove, to try to prove, not try to prove, but falsely prove that what they're saying about the trends into the future will actually occur. So the question I would ask you is the UN climate science, is it indisputable? Uh, No, I dispute it. Uh, There are many, many other scientists uh, to dispute it, uh, the data uh, collection uh, is considered pretty good. What you, the answers you get out of the data, uh, not so good. But again, the driver are the climate models. And the climate models give you an answer that they want. There are two main variables in the models. One is greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide, the second is land use changes. And if those are the variables that are the major drivers, you then ignore uh, solar radiation, which is the big heat engine, you know, for our solar system. Uh, You end up ignoring uh, so many aspects of cloud. Uh, There's some... uh, use of, uh, you know, cloud science in there, but the main drivers, the main variables are those two things. 
So therefore, if those are your two drivers, they drive the answer that you get. And again, even with that, you're still over predicting by a factor of a factor of three. So basically all the UN and US government predictions for climate Armageddon, if we don't reach net zero by 2050, they're based upon these predicted climate uh, models. So tell us a little bit about how do these models work? Um, I know that there's a lot of computer and mathematics science involved, but in simple terms, how do these people get climate models and how do they manipulate them? Well, the climate models uh, themselves are not, they're, they're a good scientific tool. Okay, you, you have to realize what a model does for science and engineering. It gives you a good indication of direction. So you end up with alternatives. You look at, okay, I've got my model. What if I increase this variable, decrease that variable? Will this make my model go higher or lower? Let's say with temperature or sea level rise, whatever you're, you're looking at. And you end up saying, now I'm going to have CO2 be one of my major variables. I'll increase CO2. My output shows an increase in temperature. I end up changing land use. Uh, more, more forests are used for subdivisions and stuff like that. But, but then you're not emphasizing maybe variables that are much more important. Uh, usually when you're uh, when the models first came out, we didn't have a lot of data on how good the models were. So initially, uh, in statistics, uh, if you remember from your statistics, statistics courses uh, back in the last millennium, I think we both took those, uh, to have a significant uh, trend in statistics, you have to have 30 distinct data points. Well, when these models first came out, there were no data points predicting the future. Now we have the 30 data points and we have about 19 or 20 different models. And in general, the models predict between two and 3% of reality. Now, initially that wasn't the case because there was no, there was no future uh, data that we could predict, you know, uh, judge the models against. Now we have that. So what that means is all these predictions of Armageddon turn out to be based on models that overpredict. Yet we are coming up with a, literally a draconian program to decarbonize, uh, but not only decarbonize from, you know, industry, but also other greenhouse gases primarily uh, related to agriculture. And this is serious. And the agriculture, not only crops, but cattle. And we're supposed to now, uh, the UN says, you, you need to go to uh, bio uh, fertilizers, which is a nice name for manure. So uh, fortunately, we have a, 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 a test case. Uh, there's a 
country off of India, used to be part of India, Sierra Lanka. And they have, they got the highest environmental social governance uh, score of any country in the world because they got rid of their commercial fertilizer, their ammonium-based nitrate fertilizer, and substituted biogenic fertilizer, a.k.a. manure. Um, Their crop yields went down so much uh, that they had to start importing food that they'd never imported before. They were not sufficient. Uh, Their rice crops went down, et cetera. Uh, This is what they're proposing for American agriculture, that we go to that. That's That's one of these consequences that you don't realize. They're not just talking about your energy and, you know, the predictions uh, to get to net zero, uh, the first step in President Biden's plan is to get the electric industry net zero by 2035. And looking at that, you are not going to have a reliable electric grid. You're going to have a dependency on wind and solar to the point uh, you don't. Uh, you need to have battery backup. The battery backup uh, needs to be three to four times the amount of generation uh, uh, that the solar is is putting out. Uh, you've got to overbuild your solar. You've got to overbuild your wind. Store what's produced during the day so you can run at night. But at the end of the day, you're going to have a very unreliable grid. And you may be in situations on long periods of rain and uh, storms, snowstorms, et cetera, like that, that you're going to have intermittent power. You may be in that situation of a third world country that they say, okay, this part of your city for four hours, you get electricity, shit shut off. Another part of the city gets electricity and so on. There's a lot of the world that, that lives with that kind of stuff. Um, uh, with their electric grid, but there are none of them that are major manufacturing countries. And this is the thing that bothers me the most is that we still have a, a huge manufacturing base here in this country, nowhere near where it was before we you know, went to China, but enough, and they stay here, one, because they're patriotic companies, but two, you have economic, not cheap anymore, economic, but more importantly, reliable electricity 24-7. When you go strong on renewables, wind and uh, uh, solar, you can't depend on that at night if it's solar. You, your, your wind speeds go down at night with the wind in many, many cases. So uh, you, have to have, you have to overbuild those two sources so you can store power for the evenings, uh, uh, battery power. That battery power is expensive. And when we looked at uh, the, the degradation of the wind, especially this proposal to have wind offshore, you find out that the offshore wind degrades at about four to 5% a year due to uh, saltwater conditions and stuff like that. So. Where a power plant, if you maintain it well, you can get 50 years. 
your solar, the very best design, German design solar cells, you're looking at uh, 25 years, you know, useful life. Wind, you're looking at 20 to 30 years useful life. So you're going to have to replace, but the degradation in output, uh, you're looking at a half to 1% a year on your solar panels. Uh, you're looking at uh, even a greater degradation with your wind inland and about four times that much if it's offshore. This is Dr. Dan, and we are back with Bob Kappelman. And thanks, Bob, for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. So pretty much what you're talking about here is that the plan is to get us to net zero uh, in the United States within the next, say, 15 to 25 or 30 years. And what that would entail is a really uh, a massive shift from reliable electrical power uh, to uh, a power system that is dependent upon many factors that make it unreliable, plus the fact that you have to be able to store electricity, which we all know is the major sticking point for all of these uh, non-traditional ways of making electrical power. So the bottom line is that, and in addition to which, as you just pointed out, all of these uh, uh, all of these power sources like wind and solar degrade over time, uh, and they degrade over time. So then you would have to replace these systems. Uh, and you may not even have the capability of replacing them if you destroy your industry. So it looks to me uh, as if the these goals are really not attainable in a real sense. Uh, wouldn't you? Would you agree with that? I mean, yeah, yes, we can get to net, net zero, but it's not a sustainable type thing where for the next hundred years, we'd be able to maintain power uh, because the mechanisms, the infrastructure itself degrades much more rapidly than we could possibly tolerate. Well, it depends on what you're willing to tolerate. I mean, this is what we're told. This is an existential threat you know, to humanity. Uh, that means extinction is the, the root word there. So what would you do to avoid distinction? Extinction. Uh, but what you're going to have is you're not going to have the quality of life you're used to. I think one of the things that people don't realize is that we had a policy in the 1990s when this whole climate thing uh, came up, and I was part of the group. I represented the public power sector uh, in Washington at that time. And we came up with what we call the no regrets policy. And it, that, that married up with the all of above energy strategy. Um, so what we were saying is, look, we want all of the above energy 
optimized as efficient as possible. Your coal plants as efficient as possible, your gas plants, you're going to develop your renewable energy. It's going to be as efficient as possible. And by doing this, by lowering the amount of emissions per megawatt hour of generation, you can say, we've got no regrets. We're, we're getting more power for less you know, uh, fossil fuels, et cetera. Now we've gone away with, uh, from that. We've gone to zero energy, you know, zero emissions at no matter what the cost is, no matter what you do to the American people, the American economy. It's interesting. There are two countries that have embraced the all of above, uh, uh, program that we had in the 1990s. And I, I joke because we always uh, claim the Chinese steal everything from us and stuff like that. Well, that is what India and China have submitted to the UN. They've said they are going to uh, reduce their carbon intensity, their greenhouse gas intensity by 50%. And the, the media, I don't know if you noticed, the media went wild. The Secretary of Energy is, you know, commenting or just commending the Chinese on their, their greenhouse gas renewable program. That happened just, uh, uh, you know, within the last week or so. And inter interestingly enough, what the Chinese are saying is we are going to build the most efficient coal-fired plants and they will be approximately 50% more energy for the same amount of coal as our old plants. We're going to do that with our gas plants. We're going to also have the most efficient renewable portfolio in the world. And what we're going to end up with is having the most economic uh, power and the most reliable power grid in the world. The Indians are saying the same thing. They're saying net zero, ha, no. No way we're going to destroy our economy with this foolish net zero, but we will increase our greenhouse gas uh, or reduce my, our greenhouse gas intensity by 50%. The Indians have already said they will go up to 70%, I think because their power grid is not as modern as the Chinese now. So uh, unfortunately, when the Secretary of Energy of the United States doesn't understand the difference between net zero and uh, reducing your carbon intensity per unit of energy, uh, we, we have a problem here. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Original sin, only real 
had called him Muddy Waters. And people, I just love to hear that old man sing. Yeah, when I played the hoochie-coochie man I get joy in everything Everything, everything Everything gonna be all right this morning Once you hear Dr. Dan, weekends on WJRB 95.1 FM, you'll know he's right. Really, this is a nation that is built upon the concept of private property ownership. As a matter of fact, the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Catch Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. and again Sundays at 2.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. on News Talk 95.1.